my favorite moment of your talk, you clicked to a slide and everyone groaned. Do you remember what that was? <laughs> that was the trolley car. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Because you, you, you took the audience from groaning into, I, I, you could feel the, oh. <laughs> Alright, uh, hello and welcome to the Mobility Podcast. Uh, this is Greg Rogers, uh, founder and president of Aries Public Policy. Um, we have a special uh, guest co-host today. Hello, I'm Sophie Jantz. I am a public policy professional and urbanist. And we're recording on-site at the 12th edition of TRB's Automated Road Transportation Symposium uh, in beautiful San Francisco, California. Um, a little bit of fog hanging in the air this afternoon, uh, but uh, we're seeing sunny skies and uh, inside even more uh, sunny, uh, happy faces exploring what the future of mobility looks like. Um, so we have a really special guest uh, for you today. Uh, we're thrilled to welcome Chris Gerdes, Professor Emeritus uh, of Mechanical Engineering at Stanford University. Uh, Chris is the former director and one of the founders of the Center for Automotive Research at Stanford, uh, also known as CARS. Uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Craig, Sophie, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, well, you know, as a Berkeley alum, um, I think I'm going to come up under a little bit of fire for bringing someone from Stanford on the podcast, but uh, I'd like to apologize to my fellow Bears in advance. Um, well, I am a Berkeley alum. Oh, you are as, too? As well, okay. as is my wife. So, go Bears, uh, so go we Bears. Got that, we yeah. got that <laughs> good to hear. Always good to meet another Cal alum. Um, well, Chris, so we invited you on the podcast um, to learn about how you're teaching the next generation of innovators in the AV space and researching cutting-edge technologies. Um, and we're especially interested in talking to you today because your work really seems to break down uh, the silos between the sciences and liberal arts um, and emerging tech and I, in a really fascinating way, I think, um, because it's, it is rare to encounter someone who's researching both the really technical side um, of things, um, both in terms of uh, the legal challenges around autonomous vehicles, but also looking at standards and all of these different things. But you're also marrying that with the, equi with the equity and ethics impacts of AVs. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I enjoy everything from you know going out on the racetrack and trying to develop these things to thinking much more broadly about how will automated vehicles mesh with society and you know, who will get the benefits and potentially the cost of this technology? Yeah, um, that's great. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into that. But before we do, um, I want to ask you uh, the most important question uh, of the podcast. And that is, what is your transportation story? How did you, why do you do what you do? Well, I can uh, share one transportation story. I, I grew up in a little town called Concord, North Carolina, uh, which was just north of the Charlotte Motor Speedway where you had a lot of NASCAR teams. Now, this was before NASCAR was the thing uh, that it is now. So it was a, a very local, local sort of sport in, in many ways. And the place that you went, uh, if you were uh, a, a kid that you wanted to go to in Concord, was the Carolina Mall, which still exists, by the way. But um, at that time, it was where the Sears was, and that's where you went. So I went there one day, and there was a, there was a stock car sitting in the center of the mall. And I mean, they would do like trout fishing, or other sorts of things in the center of the mall. It was, you know, kind of almost a town square thing. So I went in there one day, and there's a there's a stock car sitting there, and there's a driver next to it, and nobody is talking to this guy. So I went over at like age eight or so, and figured I'd have a conversation. Could not have been nicer. 
And so I, I went home immediately and painted my slot car uh, to match the colors of this driver's car. And it was Dale Earnhardt Sr. You know? And so he was in the mall by himself, which is sort of unimaginable like later on in his career. But it was yeah. his second year in NASCAR. He was in a yellow and, and blue car with a number two on it at the time. And just was the nicest guy to this little punk kid who came up. And so, you know, I, I was really interested in that. I was interested in how cars move. And then you know, the, the flip side of the transportation story is I've had too many people in, in my among family and friends who, who've been killed in traffic accidents. And so I thought, well, you know, I, I like cars. I love seeing how they move. Um, maybe we can get them to move in a way where that doesn't happen. And that's really kind of how I've ended up doing what I do. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, no, this is so interesting because uh, one of the questions that I had for you was how you are linking racing with autonomous vehicles. Um, so I guess this is a good segue to kind of dive into the first topic about um, how universities are approaching uh, research with autonomous vehicles. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess, you know, what, what does that look like? Um, does the university have partnerships with certain AV companies? How do you kind of get your hands on some of the tech? Uh, kind of interested in what that looks like. I think our program is set up a little bit differently than other universities might be because everything that we do is designed to be open. Um, and so, in fact, much of the funding that we get comes from industry, um, but it often comes from industry in the form of gifts or in the form of very, very open contracts that allow us a lot of freedom uh, to research what we want to research. And in fact, the corporate partners that we have have really viewed the benefit of working with us as getting new ideas, not just sort of as additional labor for generating their ideas. And so that's really been our model to try to stay a little bit on the, on the bleeding, let, bleeding edge of this and to offer companies a chance to move very quickly um, by innovating openly. And I think that's nice because students can work across projects and things like that. I actually currently at the moment have a uh, visiting scholar from uh, Toyota who is working on a Volkswagen in the lab um, and, and doing research because everything that we do is designed to be, to be open. I imagine you probably you test AV software, right? Um, or, or you have some AV software that you operate in order to do some of your research. So where do you get that software from? I mean, is, do you have your own vehicles that are equipped with AV technology? Where, you know, where, where are you sourcing that, that from? Yeah, so we like to do things uh, in a very hands-on way in my lab. So we are out on the racetrack generally about once a month mm -hmm. uh, doing testing. And we have a range of vehicles. Some of them we have built entirely ourselves. Um, so we have uh, X1, which is a four-wheel steer, four-wheel brake uh, vehicle. We have some LiDAR sensors on there, and this is something that we've basically built the chassis and everything with, with students. Uh, we've also modified a DeLorean to be a, a drift vehicle. Uh, so we started with the DeLorean. The powertrain for that was developed by uh, Renovo Motors, which was a local startup and is now part of Toyota's Woven Planet. Um, but, you know, we did the software on that. We also have other, other cars that we've worked on with manufacturers like um, our Golf GTI Niki, um, which is a really interesting connection with Volkswagen. So Niki has a twin named Norbert who lives in Europe. And so VW built up a vehicle for us and gave us access to the onboard systems. We then developed the software that we want for the automation. 
Um, but then we can take it on a USB drive and plug it into Norbert in Europe. And so we're going to be doing that with them in Portugal in the, in the summer. We're usually testing with them in, in the summer. And then also in the winter, they let us use their winter testing facility. So in that case, the cooperation is almost entirely on the test track. Again, we're free to do what we want, and then we share the results. So we're not really exchanging PowerPoint presentations so much as we're sitting in the car and saying, oh, how did you solve that problem? And, and so I think, you know, as you, as you point out, automated vehicle software stacks are very complicated, right? So when you look at this from the university standpoint, it's like, well, how the heck do you do that? And we do try to be focused on, on what we do because there's no way that we could develop an entire software stack at the level of uh, sophistication that you need to be out testing on the road. Yeah, that's gonna be my question because it's things are constantly changing with the developers. I mean, they're you're, 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 they're pushing a lot of version updates, and it would be really hard for you to keep up, you know, uh, without like the massive one thousand uh, person workforce, right? That a lot of these companies have. That's right. So what we try to do is to stay focused, and you know, in particular, in a certain area of the software stack where we're dealing largely with motion planning. Uh, and then we tie in to um, other pieces of software that would do things with respect to perception or, or the low-level uh, actuators on the, on the vehicles. Again, when we do our own cars, and we have to kind of do a little bit of all of that. But, but in general, we kind of try to stay in a sweet spot where we're making the research contributions and then where I think that we can train people who, who then go out and do these things in industry. Yeah, I love that. Um, let's dive into uh, ethics and equity of transportation systems. Um, you've been teaching a course on Stanford about this with, and it has the same name, right? Um, it's uh, Ethics and Equity of Transportation Systems. Exactly. And as I understand it, you're looking at the origin and the impacts of how transportation technology and, uh, and policy and regulation sort of all fit together. Who benefits, who bears the costs, and how social and individual objectives are achieved. Um, but for those of us who don't have the time to say audit your course, um, could you give us the uh, the cliff notes so we can get continuing education credits? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I can't necessarily guarantee credits here, but I can, uh, I can prep you for the test a little bit on that. Um, so as you pointed out, there's a lot of aspects to thinking about transportation. And so one of the, the things that the class tries to do is, is just provide a little bit of background uh, for students who may not have spent a lot of time thinking about transportation issues. So, you know, how does transportation policy get made? Where does the funding come from? What are the relative problems that are considered at the local, the, the state, and the, and the federal level? And so, you know, being located in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's a lot of agencies and a lot of different overlaps. So we just try to make students kind of sensitive to what are the different agencies and organizations that are involved in transportation policy. And because it's an, an ethics class, we also like to give them a little bit of background in moral psychology. So we talk uh, about moral foundations and about how people can have very different views uh, on the same problem and yet still have really a basis for the morality of, of their thinking. We talk about different philosophical uh, approaches to things. In fact, um, my my co-instructor, uh, Stephen Zuff, and I, uh, together with some of our teaching team, have usually done a, a debate uh, from the standpoint of different philosophers who are trying to teach <laughs> philosophical perspectives. We have debates with Immanuel Kant and uh, Aristotle and uh, utilitarian Jeremy Bentham, and we oh, you yeah. know, argue these points uh, back and forth in character. So we've tried to you know keep it um, to be informational, but also useful. 
And so then with that background in mind, we, we try to teach a couple of tools. Uh, and the first of these is value-sensitive design. So how do you identify the underlying human values? How might those tie into ethics or moral foundations? And you know, how can we keep those sort of front and center in the design process so that we do end up developing technologies and developing solutions that will match the human values of, of various stakeholders? And for that matter, how do you think about stakeholders? You know, we, we go through a process of, of identifying that and trying to really ideate around um, generating long lists because essentially everybody will come up with the, the same five stakeholders at first. But if you ask them to think of, of 100, then you know, what they'll find is between 80 and 90, there's usually some that will make their top 10 list. And if they didn't go through that process, they never would have found them. Yeah. And the other tool that we, we teach is um, doing a cost-benefit analysis. So obviously in, in policy, you have to do these things, but where do the costs come from? And how do you quantify some of these benefits that we think are important around equity, but maybe really hard to put a dollar value on? Yeah, and, where's the threshold, right? Yeah. Where, where, <laughs> yeah. So, like, this course, do you see it as being more from the lens of an engineer? Is it really designed for engineering students to learn about these product, project, uh, problems? Or is it sort of like a, a broader, like, representation of disciplines? Who is taking the class? That's a great question. And so we have had a lot of engineers, and part of that is, I think, you know, what, what requirements it satisfies for different... Uh, different majors because it does count as an ethics requirement in, in engineering. So we've had uh, people take it perhaps for that reason, but also, you know, because they think it's cool, hopefully. And, um, you know, we've had law students, we've had people from a variety of different backgrounds uh, take it as well. So I, I don't think we've taught it in a way that's particularly um, engineering-centric. Um, that has been a bit of the the background just in terms of the instructors and how we're thinking about it in terms of serving the need. But, but I think most of what we've done is, is pretty accessible to, to anybody at the university. And how long you've been, have you been teaching this course? Let's see, you know, part of the inspiration was, was um, my time in D.C. So I think we taught it for the, the first time, in, I'm trying to remember if it was 2017 or 2018. And how has it evolved over that time? Because we've seen a lot of uh, changes in where the technology is, where expectations yeah. are. I mean, you must, the syllabus must have gone through a few revisions, right? Well, I think you know, this was a funny thing because it was the first time that Stephen and I had, had uh, talked together. So Stephen was um, the, the director of our Center for Automotive Research at Stanford. He was the executive director. And uh, so he and I develop this course together. He's actually now at USDOT, and he says that basically his life every day uh, is, is exactly what we were teaching in the course. So it's like, okay, we reached one person at any rate. Um, but, you know, I think Stephen thought that we were going to nail this down and then be like, all right, we'll pull the notes out every year. And so what he didn't realize was that, you know, I, I kind of tend to, to, to redesign almost every year. And so every year it was like, okay, what worked, what didn't work? Let's go back and treat this as a clean sheet of paper. I will say one of the things that made the biggest impact on the course was actually COVID. Um, because you know, trying to talk to a group of students who may not have thought about transportation, but you know, haven't generally been in the workforce to, to deal with the sorts of decisions that we're giving them a framework to deal with, and you know, may not have spent a lot of time thinking about ethics. And sometimes it felt like we were giving people tools for, for problems that they had just never never thought about. Yeah. But now suddenly when, when COVID hit, 
these ideas about, you know, individual freedom or, you know, equal outcomes versus equal treatment, you know, all of the sorts of things that we wanted to make people sensitive about. It's like, how do you do cost benefit analyses? What are the things that you consider? Well, suddenly all of this was very real to everybody's life because it was impacting them on a day-to-day -day basis. So we did actually pivot a little bit to say, let's pull in some of the experiences that they're having, give students a chance to kind of talk about what they're experiencing, tie that into the yeah. theory. And then we found that when they, when they launched from that into the transportation topics, it was really powerful. Yeah, it's kind of taking that, <laughs> The armchair expert, the armchair public health expert that we all were during the pandemic, and uh, and channeling our energy into something pretty productive. There right? we go. Yeah, back exactly. to them. Yeah, exactly. All the doom scrolling that you were doing about different things could be turned into actual after all, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, that's that's really great. Um, so. I really enjoyed uh, your talk this morning because you, uh, I, I think that you compressed a lot of the questions that we have around, that I think the sector has, and these conversations we keep on having year after year after year after year on how to approach AV safety. What, what should our philosophy be? How should we navigate this? Could, um, could you give folks maybe a, a quick recap of what that was? Um, because I, I really loved how you presented um, the history behind all of these, how and how all these pieces fit together when we're talking about regulating EVs. Yeah, so I mean, a question that is often asked at these conferences is how safe is safe enough? And, you know, the question of well, what is it that we're really going after? And I think as I've done work, and this is based on a lot of work I've done as a safety advisor for Ford Motor Company and their automated vehicle programs, um, as we've started to look at the interaction of the law and, and what does the law really say, I, I've come to believe that society's already figured out what is safe enough. And it really is the standards that we ask of human drivers, which is ordinary care. In other words, you have to behave the way a reasonable person would behave in this situation. You have to keep a lookout for other people, and you have to control the speed and the motion of your car to avoid crashes. And this is really very old law. I mean, these sort of principles were established by 1920, way before we had all the traffic rules that we have now. And in fact, they, they've never been replaced. Uh, they, you'll find them in jury instructions. You'll find them in appeals court cases, you know, from just this past year. This is the, the principle that kind of underlies that. And so it seems to me that really our answer with automated vehicles could be pretty simple, which is to say that that standard of care, that duty of care that humans owe each other, the automated vehicle needs to owe to other people on the road. And it really should be designed to never violate the duty it owes to any road user. And I think if we can do that, then that's a high level principle, which is fairly easy to communicate to people. Um, within Ford, I've been helping them sort of say, okay, well, how do you go from that high level principle to actual engineering requirements? But we've actually had success in doing that. So I think that it, in my mind, we could start with a high level principle that we already have. In other words, society has already figured out that we think this is a safe enough way to operate vehicles and then translate that into things we can engineer around. Yeah. And, and I, I love your, your approach and the way that you frame it too especially from being around, you know, the discussions around federal AV policy and being involved in the first discussions around AV start and self-drive, um, I don't know how many dog years ago, um, when there was all these questions of should we be explicitly saying AVs have to be able to do this, this or that, or not do this and not do that. And instead, it, you know, the answer often tends to be more along the lines of, like you were saying, more about 
focusing on the response on the, what what would a responsible actor do? Um, my favorite moment of your talk, you clicked to a slide and everyone groaned. Do you remember what that was? <laughs> that was the trolley car. Mission, <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Um, can can you? Um, I. I love how you approached that because you, you you took the audience from groaning into I, I, you could feel the oh <laughs> so can can you explain what what how it is that you uh, effectively kind of debunked the importance of the trolley car problem uh, with AVs here? Sure. So you know I think it's a matter of reframing really, and so a lot of times you know, people have sort of posed the trolley car problem uh, for AVs as okay I've got this choice of of two collisions and I have to choose one. How do I do it? Right. And so that's one framing that everybody's familiar with. I actually gave a I gave a talk actually at the National Academy of, of Engineering and was on a plane headed back and had forgotten to take off my name tag. And somebody it said speaker on it. And the person at security said, you know, what were you speaking on? I said, well, ethics and automated vehicles. They're like, oh, I know all about that. Do I run over the old lady or the baby carriage? And I was like, that's Kind of not it. Um, but, but that's what people think. And the way that that's been framed is very utilitarian. In other words, what is the outcome that I want? Do I want this bad thing to happen or do I want this other bad thing to happen? And I just don't think that there's an answer down that path. But if you take this duty of care, you can really say, well, look, driving is a social contract. I give up my individual rights, I get civil rights. And there's a whole branch of ethics on social contractarianism, which resonates in the US because you know John Locke and other people who inspired the founders were really the proponents of this. This says, look, my only obligation is to fulfill my social contract. And so you could say, well, okay, the only um, duty of the vehicle should therefore be to fulfill the duty of care it owes everybody. And then if you add the simple statement that Basically, if somebody violates the duty of care, they owe the AV. In other words, they jump out right in front of it. It doesn't give the AV the right to violate the duty of care to another person who might be having to walk down the street. So in other words, I just don't play the trolley car yeah. game, right? I don't, I don't decide on outcomes. I don't think of ethics in terms of outcomes. I think of it in terms of my duty. So I owe a duty not to violate the, the duty of care to, to you. If you jump out in front of me, I'm gonna do my darn best to avoid a crash with you because that is also my duty. But I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go after Sophie here and, and like swerve uh, to avoid the, the collision that, that you instigated. And I think if you think through that logic, it just it seems quite simple. And as we've tried to program that for automated vehicles, we're like, yeah, it actually is kind of simple. Yeah. Um, and you've written a piece about this too. I, I think I came across recently, so we can link to that in the show notes, Great. Uh, so yeah. folks can access that because it's it's a really good read, and I and I, I love your way of tackling this problem because. It, whenever folks bring up the trolley car problem and they're convinced of the importance of this question, it's always hard to dissuade them of the fact that this isn't the right way of thinking about AVs and AV safety. Yeah, Sophie? Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is something that we talked about at uh, USDOT a lot, actually. Um, I guess, do you, do you want to kind of dive into that as well yeah. while we yeah. have a couple more minutes? Um, so I was also very interested in your experience working as a, the first uh, chief innovation officer at USDOT. Um, we actually overlapped a little bit at USDOT, I realized. Um, but I, I was curious, you know, go, kind of going back to uh, your engineering background, uh, what was that like to serve as an advisor on the policy side of transportation at the federal level? 
Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I tell people I think that I I got the coolest job in the federal government. Yeah, you know, I I really honestly believe that. So I, I'm on the plane out there. I'm all, all excited about this. It came together very quickly. So you know, I'm I didn't know for sure that I was going, and then I suddenly had to pack bags and get on an, an overnight flight. What year was this? Um, this is 2016. Yeah, and early 2016. And so I, I'm. I'm headed out and realize, you know, I don't know anything about working in government. You know, my, my, my initial excitement went, went to some trepidation there. Uh, yeah. But what I found was that I was there under um, detail under the Intergovernmental Personnel Act. So I was neither a career civil servant nor a political appointee. But both groups welcomed me with open arms. And so I, I was so impressed with the quality of people um, that I met. And I really wish everybody could have that experience just to see, you know, who is serving uh, at, in the federal government. Where do your tax dollars go? They go to, you know, paying people, many of whom made far more money for far fewer hours in the private sector, but are, but are doing this because they're very mission driven. And so it was a phenomenal experience there. And you mentioned in particular the engineering background. You know, what I found is it's really difficult in government to sometimes get good technical advice. That people may not have the technical background, they're trying to make really, really good decisions, but most of the people that they could go to for advice you know, have some sort of bias. They have some sort of position, you know, a company, something that they're representing. So it's really hard for them to get unbiased technical advice. Mm -hmm. And so I found that a lot of people would kind of just stop by my cube because I had to go through all of the ethics rules and things like that when I was there at DOT to just be like, can I bounce this around you? Uh, and and can, we, can we just sort of talk about this? I had somebody who had a highly detailed uh, test plan that was sent out in advance of a meeting. And I walked in early and I was like, oh, so I read the test plan. And he goes, you read the test plan? I'm like, yeah, I read the test plan. Isn't, that, isn't that why you sent it to me? He's like, I think five people in this organization have actually read that entire test plan. And so for me, it was, yeah. it was really great to work with fantastic people and to feel like, you know, my technical background could really benefit people who are trying to make good decisions. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, I think that's such an important and awesome part of the jobs that people do at DOT, which is a lot of just reading and understanding and trying to absorb the facts on the ground. And that can be really difficult um, a lot of the time. And especially given that sometimes there's not as much of that, uh, you know, there isn't always as much of the engineering expertise that you'll always get in the private sector um, inside the building at Navy Yard. Um, so how, based on your experience there and, and what you've seen, how, do you, how would you think about getting more engineers engaged with the question of policy and regulation? Do you, do you feel like there are gaps that we can fill? Do you have creative ideas for how to kind of address those? I mean, I think there is a lot of potential to, to use the Intergovernmental Personnel Act uh, in, in different ways and to facilitate people being able to come, say, from universities or other places into these policy positions. Uh, I know there were Presidential Innovation Fellows, which you know is, is another program that, that does some of this. Uh, the, the IPA actually swings both ways as well. So I think you, know, you could send people from government actually out into 
university labs. Yeah. And this was something that I was advocating, particularly DOT has a large you know, university research program. Unfortunately, the, the challenge is because it's competitive, then there's large portions where they're like, well, we can't talk to anybody in the universities because they might be competing for grants. And I, I think that needs to be separated a bit because you know, this is a resource. The DOT is putting lots of money in. And I think there needs to be a, a draw from those ideas and also just inspiration for the students involved in that. Yeah. And I, I was really excited to see in the bipartisan infrastructure law, the creation of ARPA I, ARPA for infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's building on, you know, the successes that we're seeing with um, uh, DARPA, which was defense uh, advanced research projects agency or something like that. And, um, and that was sort of part of the genesis of AVs. So I'm interested in your thoughts on with ARPA-I starting to ramp up, um, where would you like to see them focus um, as, you know, in, in terms of doing research for the agency and looking at new ideas? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, th- I think, you know, one thing we actually did prepare some white papers for ARPA-T, you know, when I was when I was there thinking about, OK, what could we do with transportation? Um, and, you know, one thing that I think is often overlooked is that there is some fantastic uh, resources and researchers within the Department of Transportation, the Turner Fairbank uh, Center in the Federal Highway Administration. There, there's some really great research that's going on in there. And so I think teaming sometimes, if we could find ways to sort of team with the, the folks who are doing this at the federal level um, together with the, with the private sector and universities, I, I think there could be some really interesting aspects. Great. Yeah. I'm excited to see what happens there. Um, Okay, cool. Um, so, Chris, you've been really generous with your time. Um, I have some. Uh, we have some final questions for you. Um, for, I guess, and <laughs> this could be a whole episode, but um, curious in your thoughts about the present and the future of the AV industry. Um, we've had a really tumultuous year. Uh, we've seen a lot of changes, but I think we've also seen a lot of technological progress. Um, where Where do you think we're at, and where do you think all of uh, the industry is headed? Yeah, we're pretty much in the valley of despair right now yeah, when you talk about new, new technologies. And I, I think the thing is, is that, you know, from people's perspectives, it's like you can look at a car mm-hmm. kind of driving itself around and be like, oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. But, but then, like, the next steps are, are kind of invisible, right? Mm-hmm. The, the reliability, the sorts of things that um, are going on and are going right are, are increasing, but they're not that visible. The cars that stop in the middle of the road and things, this is the, the visible factor for it. Yeah. So I think we're going through a lot of growing pains and a lot of disillusionment. I think we are um, it, making great progress. So I think the, the companies that are out there testing, what they're testing now is, is not what they had out on the road a few years ago. There's yeah. been tremendous engineering progress. But I think you know the challenge is, is that people who are funding this are also realizing that this is going to be a longer haul yeah. than they thought. So the idea that this is an existential immediate crisis and, and we need to pour billions of dollars into this, um, that has really changed. Yeah. And, and so I think that makes it a challenging time for, for companies to figure out how to keep making progress. Yeah, it is, it is remarkable. You look at all these companies that are basically leaning up, right, and trying to survive as we walk past the carcasses of the antelopes in this uh, valley of despair. <laughs> um, you've drawn for us here. Um, well, let's wrap up with uh, our favorite fun questions uh, that we ask everyone. Uh, Chris, what is the future of mobility? The future of, of mobility. I, I think the future of mobility is, is to be able to drive when you want to drive. 
And so I, I really, I, I do enjoy driving. I do enjoy getting out on a racetrack um, and taking control myself. It's much more fun to drive on the racetrack than have our software drive me on a racetrack. Um, and so I, I think really that choice, that ability, and maybe even ultimately to be able to sort of have a sliding scale where I, I can have different levels of involvement or different types of engagement with driving. Sounds like you're t- talking about levels of automation. You know, I, 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 I'm thinking more of a continuous slider, I, I, I think, in, in some ways. Um, I'm not sure always that the levels of automation is the most helpful way of thinking about this. But, but just to, to think about, I could, I could engage, I could steer the car potentially in different, in different ways down the road, um, but I could also end up just totally totally kicking back. So I, I really do think that that is, that is our future. Yeah. Well, our friend Alex Roy and the human driving association will uh, appreciate that. <laughs> um, Chris, what is absolutely not the future of mobility? What is absolutely not the future of mobility? I, I think, you know, from a sustainability standpoint, our, our present of, you know, individuals in very heavy vehicles that are, uh, basically scaled for, you know, your use once or twice a year to go on long trips or do other things. There's just no foreseeable future, I think, that, that we can continue to do. Well, maybe there is a foreseeable future. It's not a very pleasant one. It's not a good it's one. It's not, it's yeah. not a pleasant one, with respect to the climate. So, you know, I feel like we, we need to find a way of, of interrupting that, that path that we're on and maybe finding ways to um, size vehicles more appropriately for, for what you need. I mean, I, w- when we purchased an electric vehicle, we're like, yeah, you know, we, we did this a few years ago and thought this is not going to be the most convenient thing on long trips. How often do we take long trips? And you know what? We could just rent a car. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think there's going to need to be more of, of that thinking around, uh, around mobility. And I don't think we've cracked the code yet as to sort of what lies between um, automated vehicles that sort of are an Uber or Lyft-like experience and public transit. But there's a big space there that I think uh, is ripe for some innovation. Yeah, I think there's a lot more room to be thinking about form factors and the, the ways that we can change them. And uh, another fun question. Uh, what's your favorite fictional form of mobility? Yeah, that one's easy. Dragons. Okay, <laughs> yes. Dragons. That's yeah. the first time. I think oh, really? We, yeah, we've oh. got dragons. I love it that. Just, it seems to me, I mean, you know, I, I, from a safety standpoint, it's, it's probably a little bit hard to recommend because yeah. I, I don't really know any way that you can do an FMEA and make that safe. But but seriously, I mean, just like being able to ride a dragon somewhere seems to be like just mad props. You don't have to worry about a parking space. It can drop you off. You know, you don't really have to worry about threats. So dragons would be my favorite. Great, great, great. Yeah, we're going to have to get the FAA on top of uh, federal dragon safety standards. Yeah, I don't know what agency that would be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, good deal. So, Chris, um, thanks so much. This was really, really fascinating. Um, and I, shoot, I really want to go and uh, take your course, but um, at least this crash course was helpful. Awesome. Um, so where can folks find you online? Actually, I'm kind of hard to find online. I'm easier to find on the racetrack. So you can actually find our, uh, find our lab website, which is not entirely updated at, at DDL, that's for Dynamic Design Lab, .stanford.edu. Um, uh, or, you know, catch me out at the racetrack at Thunder Hill Raceway Park. And if, uh, you know, people come by, we might be able to give you a test drive. Awesome. I'm going to take you up on that. Well, very good. Thanks so much, Chris. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, that was fun.